Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. Before I begin the podcast, I want to thank everyone who gave me kind words on my Instagram page. My beautiful wife passed away, Alexandra. We were together for 10 years and she died suddenly one night, actually one morning, of an aneurysm. She had hemorrhaging of the brain and she was rushed to Royal Columbian Hospital. They performed emergency surgery on her. But she never regained consciousness. I had to hold her hand while they took her off life support. It was very tragic. And I'm still going through the grieving process. She was born in 1981. So this podcast is dedicated to Alexandra. 1981 was a very strange year for me. I lived in a house in East Vancouver. It was in the Broadway and Nanaimo area. It was an old house. I believe it was built in post-World War II around the 1950s. It had an unfinished basement. It was a small house. I would say, I would guesstimate about 1,200 square feet. But the house was extremely creepy. It was old, it was kind of shabby. The floors creaked when the pipes would make sounds and the basement was pitch, pitch black. The only light in the basement was like one of those those light bulbs that hung from a cord that had the chain that you would pull and cha-ching and a single light bulb for the entire basement. There was a washer and dryer. But there was a room down there, which I'll get into in a moment. But the owner of the house was this old lady. Her name was Irina. She was Ukrainian. She was in her 70s. And she was a short woman, but thick, but incredibly strong for a seven-year-old woman. I remember she had a pretty intense grip. I remember that from a kid. And she came and went from the house. She didn't live there all the time. She would spend time on Vancouver Island and then she would disappear at the house. But there were certain times when she was always at the house. She was always at the house for Christmas. And because she was Eastern European, we celebrated the, um, the Orthodox Christmas and the regular Christmas. But her, the holiday that was the most important to her was Easter. She was always there for Easter. And we also celebrated the Orthodox Easter. But she had a thick accent and her husband was Ukraine, uh, sorry, her husband was Hungarian. And, and uh, later I found out her language was a com- combination of Ukrainian and Hungarian. She didn't speak English with a, with a clear English accent, so she spoke to you in words of Ukrainian, Hungarian, and in English. But she was intense, and she got her point across. And she had strange rules about the house. For example, you were never allowed to open the front door. We only used the back door, and everyone obeyed it. Even my brother, no one ever opened the front door. If people knocked on the door... We went out from the side of the house and asked him, hey, what do you want? We never opened the front door. I don't understand why that was a rule, but it was. He couldn't open the front door. The other thing that she, a rule that she had was you were never allowed 
to go in the room downstairs. There was a room downstairs. It was full of old stuff. I did sneak in there once and it was creepy as hell. And I'll get into that. The downstairs was, as I said, was pitch black. There was a washer and dryer down there. And um, Irina liked to make as much of her own stuff as possible. She made pickles. She made sauerkraut. She made cabbage. And she had these big, massive crock pots downstairs and all the stuff fermenting. So it smelt like hell down there. You'd go down there and it stunk so bad of all this fermenting stuff. The house, believe it or not, still creeps me out to this day. I have a lot of reoccurring nightmares about this house. I have, to this day, I probably dream about this house at least once a week where somehow in my dream I end up at this house. Anyways, what was strange about this house was not only was this house itself was creepy, but all the houses in the direct proximity, something terrible happened in the summer of 81. I think it started off with a, um, up the street, there was this macho idiot guy with a mustache who drove a Corvette who had Dobermans. And there was this uh, cute girl that liked my brother. And my brother was seven years older than me. And she would come by to hopefully get a glimpse of my brother. And I didn't mind because she was cute and she'd wore bikinis in the summertime. And I remember one day I heard this screaming, hysterical screaming. And I looked outside and this girl was being attacked by these Dobermans and this, she was screaming and the neighbor with a shovel had to go in and smash these dogs in the head with a shovel. And she was screaming and she had stitches all up her arm. And to me, that was like the things that set it set things off. It was like, this was kind of like in, in the, um, it, I remember it was warm out, but it wasn't quite summer. And, and, um, you know, it was very traumatic to watch a girl being bitten by two Doverman pinchers and her screaming hysterically. And then, uh, the house right in front of my house was a condemned old house that had this crazy old man that lived there. And, you know, it, it's strange now because, you know, I, I don't cut my grass for two weeks and I'll have like a, a bylaws or pounding on my door. But back then in 1981, you know, there was houses that had like three feet high grass and this house was just totally overgrown. And I think there was a hole in the roof and this crazy old man lived there. I found out later he was a German pianist who, who became an alcoholic and he just went insane and slowly died in this house. And periodically we'd hear him scream and, and carry on usually in the middle of the night that kind of added for a very creepy ambiance right beside the house. Cause this house was on the corner. There was a lady named Miss McLeod. She was an old Scottish woman and she suffered a terrible tragedy. Her husband went with her two boys fishing 
and they went fishing around the um, Lionsgate Bridge. And that has a very serious, what's called a riptide. And, and when the tides change, it just creates a very powerful current. They went missing, never seen again, and assumed drowned. And she went kind of crazy. And uh, she died, I uh, remember, in 1981. And, and under kind of very mysterious circumstances, too. She died in the house. And, and I remember the police investigating because they believed that there could have been like some kind of foul play, but never really got the, you know, to the bottom of it. Behind the house, so behind, right directly behind the house, was a Welsh family who would go back to the UK every summer. And one summer, 1981 again, the mom decided that she was going to join them later. I think she had to work and she couldn't get off uh, work in time. So she was going to join the family. And before she she left to Wales or the UK uh, that summer, there was reports in the neighborhood of a peeping Tom. I don't really hear that term anymore, but back in the day, they'd call it a peeping Tom, some kind of loser pervert that would peep in people's windows, mostly women trying to get a, you know, I guess a glimpse of women changing and that sort of thing. So it was warm. It was warm. And I guess she didn't close the back door. She only locked the screen door but didn't close the back door. And I guess the peeping Tom used this as an opportunity and he cut the screen and he entered and she was showering. And this woman, who was a very attractive woman, but she wore thick Coke bottle glasses. So she, if she didn't wear her glasses, she was pretty much blind. So this sicko waited for her while she was showering. And when he, she got out of the, when he got out, when she, got out of the shower he took this opportunity and he brutally beat her up and raped her and apparently really terrorized her and I remember because I was in the backyard of my house and she came out screaming and she was wearing a towel and my mom was home and she came yelling for my mom and my mom ran out and they called the police and they had the canine dogs. They took her to the hospital. My mom told me to go away and go to a friend's house and then, you know, my mom was not the most balanced woman at this stage. So this really terrorized my mother and terrorized me because I'm thinking, is this creep going to go after my mom next? So, you know, that, that was really traumatic and, and really horrible. The house across the street was another house. It was this great big massive house. Like it was a huge house. I would say the house was a, at least four or 5,000 square feet, three floors. And again, hedge overgrown, grass overgrown, and another crazy dude losing his marbles in there who, again, who would act out and yell. And, and if kids, you know, we were kids and ours kicked the soccer ball and the ball would go in his, in his yard. Basically that ball was history. You went on, you went in his yard. The guy would come out freaking screaming at us. One of those crazy old man, like keep off my grass. So, you know, there was a lot of like tension around that house. And another really messed up thing was, was this was, my brother was actually a pretty good kid. He was a pretty good kid all the way to when he went into high school. He was 
my brother played in the band. He played the trumpet. He played the hockey. He was into hockey, and he was actually a really good hockey player, and he was already getting scouted for amateur hockey, and he already had some scouts interested in him. But East Van at the time, around 1981, there was a lot of tough kids. And my brother, I think he got seriously bullied, and I suspect this is what happened to him, what started to take place in my backyard. In my backyard was a big, thick it was a, it's called an Italian plum tree and it's a, it was a big tree and it grows, uh, grew a lot of plums every summer, but it was a quite a large tree. And alongside the house was a large, thick laurel hedge that was about eight to 12 feet high. And then on the other side, my mom had a large thing of, of rose bushes. So that backyard, and then there was rose bushes, uh, blocking the alley. So that backyard was heavily secluded. So my brother, tough guy friends, decided that my backyard was a perfect place to have pit fights and backyard brawls and stuff. And what I suspect what they were doing is that people that wanted to hang with their crew, they had to be initiated. So they would be put through these brutal beatdowns. So I would have to watch. And of course, they would do this when my mom wasn't home. And I'll get to my mother in a second. But they would come over to my house, you know, they'd all gather around. They would have some guy, usually I would think of him as a dupe or someone who maybe wanted to be initiated into their crew. And they would have to prove themselves. They would have to fight four or five guys. And a lot of these guys, man, they were in over their heads because some of these kids were pretty tough. And, and what I would see was they wouldn't try to knock the guy out. They would almost like punch him in the face, like almost like 50% of the time, like 50% of their power, more almost like a taunt, like smack him around and the guy would get all, you know, get pretty emotional. And, and then, and they would just like keep going and going and the guy would be exhausted and they would make him like they'd force him to fight. And sometimes I've seen people were forced to fight each other and they're basically panting and, you know, d- you know, dying for breath and they're like completely gassed out. And these guys are just like, come on, keep fighting. And, and then, and, and I would see the fear in their eyes. And I've watched this, like, you know, probably this like 30, 40 times of this, these vicious beat downs. But like, again, it wasn't like they were trying to like, you know, use like knockout power or really trying to really hurt them. It was more like humiliation and of course, in 1981, they didn't call people bitches. And East Van especially was goof, fag, or queer. And they'd be like, come on, you fucking queer. Get up, get up. And, and then they'd be forced to get up. And you keep fighting. You keep going. You keep going. And, and, and I actually saw this. They would actually use like these smelling salts. So the guy is like basically so out of gas. And he so, he's barely can breathe. And they'd give him smelling salts. Like force. It was like force fighting. So I'm 10 years old seen a woman, you know, after the fact of just being brutally raped. I saw a dog, two dogs, two Dobermans, almost maul a girl to death, crazy old men in the area, a woman next door who dies under mysterious circumstances, brutal backyard beatdowns. And I seeing the fear, like I remember just seeing like people, cr- like, you know, these kids just crying hysterically. There was a mysterious fire kind of later in the fall and my suspect is my brother must have pissed somebody off. And sometimes I think it was 
wasn't one of these kids that just got brutally humiliated in my backyard and had the, you know, the snot beat out of them. They're, you know, seeing them cry and beg and wanting to stop and they're forced to keep going. Did they come back and light my house on fire? Because that's a strange story in itself and I'll get more into that lately. But I'm trying to set the stage of the environment of a, for a 10-year-old kid. My mother was from a wealthy family. She's Icelandic. Her father was a prominent surgeon. And she, my mother had a life of privilege and went to one of the fanciest uh, private schools in Canada called York House. But then in the 60s, my mom went a little crazy. She became a hippie, a flower child, and she rebelled against her family. And I think doing some research on it now, I think what happened was is that my grandmother died and um, my grandfather remarried quite quickly, right? I think within like a month and it really upset her. So therefore she went out of her way to hurt her father she stole money apparently you know embezzled like 30 grand which was a lot of money back in the 70s and i think it was around the 70s she stole about 30 grand and that's a lot of money you could buy a a house on the fanciest area of town for 30 grand back then so she stole she really rebelled and and when i was a kid before you know i'm kind of backtracking here um, I was dragged all over the United States. My dad was American. My dad, my mother met my dad, I believe, at a Vietnam protest. My dad was an ex-Vietnam vet. My dad um, lives in Colorado now. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska. And my dad is a native and African-American descent. And, um, you know, my, my mother uh, dragged me all over the States. I lived in... Uh, I think before I was even five years old, I lived in Minnesota, Seattle, uh, Houston, Texas, parts of California. I remember living on ranches, farms, and I remember my grandmother took care of me for quite a while because my mom and my dad were just such flakes and, you know, into the whole hippie bullshit thing. And, and then finally I got reunited with my mom, um, when I was about five years old, my dad was living in Vancouver, so on a Christmas Eve, there's called the there was used to be what's called the Blue Boy Hotel on Marine Drive. My dad was drinking and driving and gone to a car accident, and um, I was in the car, and I spent Christmas uh, in the hospital. And so I went to foster care, and then I was, so I was in foster care, and then um, my brother was estranged too. My brother actually has a different father. And uh, so when I came to this house, finally, it was like kind of in 1980, it was kind of being reunited with my mother and my brother, who I didn't even know I had, but he was from another marriage. Apparently my mom had, my mom flaked off and ran off with my dad. And so my mom was a train wreck and then she actually did time for jail for fraud. And she was totally estranged from her wealthy family. So what made it even odder was I never found out why she hooked up with this old Ukrainian lady. That is still a mystery to this day. My mom was into weird stuff and my mom was quite weird. And even to this day, she's weird. She's not as weird as she was. And we kind of patched up a relation somewhat, but back then she was super weird. So 
the old lady, as I said, she had all these rules not to go into the basement and I mean into that room. And, and one day I did, and it was super creepy. There was all these pictures and of like, you know, if I guess her, of her when she was younger and on horses, and I guess she owned a, she had a farm somewhere and she was all, and she looked like, and I was looking around through this room. The room was super creepy. It just had a horrible vibe. And I remember, you know, big wolf spiders, old luggage and there was a picture kind of like of an old man with really sharp features one of those pictures like no matter where you walk in the room and the room was very small like really small i think this room was like maybe like a i don't know had enough room for a bed and a dresser and that was about it but it had this picture on the wall of this old man whom i assume was her husband but it was one of those pictures that no matter where you are the eyes are following you and then she had a bunch of those creepy victorian dolls that kind of totally creeped me out but i, I went through the suitcase and i remember there was a picture of this woman with red hair and it was like one of those it was like i'd say the picture was probably from the 50s and i dropped the picture because i remember the one of the first nights I ever moved into that house. I had the most horrible nightmare that I remember vividly to this day. And it was this woman. It was a, a witch. She had red hair and black, cold eyes like Irina's. And in this nightmare that I remember, I was in this really large mansion with this big spiraling staircase. And I'm running up the spiraling staircase and the witch is floating up through the spirals and she has a blowgun and she's shooting darts at me. And no matter how fast I run, she can keep up with me and she's cackling with this horrible cackle. And it scared the living, you know, what out of me to this day. I, I am terrified. And I dreamt about that woman again, but I'll get into that in a moment. So when I saw the picture of the woman, the red hair, which I believe was Irina, scared the shit out of me. And I ran out of that room. And the, the basement had an awful vibe. And like, it, she would make a lot of her homemade, like, you know, sauerkraut and cabbage and pickles. So it stunk terribly. And just the vibe was this is when you went down there, it just it, the, the feeling you got was if you ever was in a room with people who didn't like you, but they didn't have to say anything and you felt like, we don't like you. We don't want you here. We hate you. That's how it felt every time you went down in that room and into that basement was, we don't want you here. We hate you. Get out of here. And when I was, when I would go downstairs, I kept my bike because there was a side door that, that, that you could, you know, open to go outside. And I kept my bike in there and I had, I was able to be skillfully to run downstairs, open the basement door and get the hell out of there and go the other way. Like, it, or if I had to do laundry, just you'd, I'd run, throw my clothes and run out. My brother didn't even go down that stairs. He didn't go down there at all. He hated it down there. I had a dog, a pit bull would not go down there. We would, I would even joke and try to bring my dog downstairs. My dog would whimper and get the hell out of there. I had two cats. The cats would not want to go down there. It was, it had an awful vibe. My uncle, my mom's brother came by once to help fix the washing machine. 
and he was down there and he you could tell he didn't like it down there and he had to bring in one of those strobe light mechanic strobe lights to try to get in there because the lighting was so crappy there and he was straining trying to fix the washing machine and he died of a massive heart attack down there and that was i wouldn't say that was 1981 that was probably in 1980 and um so yeah this the the whole vibe of the place and even the surrounding area was awful and and another strange thing was my brother never wanted to sleep with the lights on he would always fall asleep with the lights off and of course we shared a room and uh and so i would have to sleep with a blindfold right so I, I suspect you know he probably had nightmares too and i remember when he once had a bad mushroom trip he did magic mushrooms and he freaked all out and he would he basically didn't want to go in the house he ran out of the house and he would not go back into the house the other creepy thing about the house things would go missing all the time and describe how the house was. So you, you would, again, we're not never allowed to open the back door, right? I mean, we're never allowed to open the front door. So we only used the back door. So it had a front door and a back door. The, back, the front door was not allowed to be used. The, the kitchen was quite small. It had a phone on the, um, it had a phone against the wall. There was a little dining room area. The living room had these really heavy velvet thick curtains and like was like a couple layers and the curtains were always closed. So, so the living room was always dark, even in the summertime, a lot of old fashioned trinkets and, you know, like old lady stuff and like old cups and paintings that were old. And, you know, it had a really like, you know, creepy vibe. My mom would sit at the dining room table smoking cigarettes drinking black coffee and just being completely almost like canatonic half the time in that house or she was off driving around going to thrift stores looking for you know antiques that she would come back and hoard in the house before i knew what hoarding was so the house was very cluttery but stuff would always get missed go missing keys you know not big money but little bits of money like you know and of course i would get the blame of it i get screamed at and of course maybe sometimes the money would be found maybe it wouldn't um yeah weird little things like that would go missing now this is a strange thing that happened and I have no explanation for it. And I swear on my wife's life that this is as true as I can remember. So down the street, so so down the street was a 7-Eleven. And I was 10 years old, feeling a little rebellious. And I stole a pack of hockey cards. And I walk back. Now, I'm in perfect line of vision to the house. I can see the house and it had a driveway where my mom would pull up her car, but my mom was not home. So I could see her car's not there. So I'm walking towards the house and I can totally see the house. And I'm, let's say, you know, two blocks away. I'm walking a straight line for the house. I took all the hockey cards because you look through, oh, I have this one. I have that one. I don't got this one. And all the ones that I already had, I tossed them. I threw them. I'm walking home and where I put my hand to squeeze the fence to, you had to squeeze it to open the gate up to open, right? The hockey cards that I threw away, 50 feet away, 
were there waiting for me. It freaked me out so bad. And I have no, and I thought about it. Was someone effing with me? Did they grab them? Did they kind of run around and figure out a way to do it? But I would have saw it. You know, I had a clear line of vision. And it's probably to this day the strangest thing that I cannot explain. The old lady Irina was into weird stuff. She she had rituals that she would do. And I asked people like, you know, of, of Eastern European descent, if they know about it, anyone listening who can comment on this, I'm I'm be happy to hear if someone can help me shed light of this. She had these weird rituals, like I said. Easter was her most important holiday and she would always show up at the house and every Easter morning and she made sure we did it and she supervised us. She would make us wash our hands with a a boiled egg that was dyed blood red and we had to say something in in Ukrainian, I believe. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I'm probably going to say it wrong, but it translates to the blood of Christ. So we had to wash our hands with this egg and her hands would get all red with blood and we'd have to chant the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, which was, you know, kind of creepy for a 10 year old kid. And uh, she'd supervise us and made sure everyone in the house did that. Um, the other, the other thing that was troubling in the house too, was you would, you would feel stuff. And, and sometimes I would, when I would fall asleep, I would wake up in my room. So my brother would be upstairs. We had bunk beds or he'd be above me. He'd be asleep finally, right? He'd slept with the lights on. Wasn't allowed to turn off the light, even though he was seven years older than me. And he was like this East Van tough guy getting in all this, this crazy trouble already at 17. And, um, so I'd wake up, my mom would be sleeping on a mat beside my bed, the dogs, the cats, we'd all be sleeping together. And what I suspect was, and this is like I said, the, the old lady would come and go, I feared that my mom was afraid sometimes to sleep by herself because she would get scared. Because like I said, like anytime you were alone in this house, for me at 10 years old, wasn't that often, you'd really f- So yeah, the house had a, had a presence, had a feeling to it, right? It had this, it had this vibe, like, especially, like I said, downstairs, it it felt forceful, like, like it, it almost felt like something pushing you. Like you'd go downstairs in the darkness and you'd feel like it was almost like something pushing you. Right. And, and, and then I had once I had another really bad nightmare and this was actually after I left the house and I was going through some pretty crazy stuff through my, in that period of my life. And I had probably one of the worst nightmares of my adult life. And I was sleeping in that room, in that, that disgusting, creepy room with the spiders and that creepy painting and the, uh, and I was laying in on that bed and the bed was really kind of gross and old and it had like this really awful, like tattered uh, blanket that looked like, I don't know, it looked like it could have been a hundred years old, but it probably wasn't just old and ugly. And I was laying on that blanket. It had a window that would look outside these curtains that you can pull apart. And that witch, the redhead witch with the dark eyes was standing on the lawn, staring at me, laughing at me. And I was trapped and I was like frozen, this incomplete like terror, like completely like paralyzed feeling. And I actually woke up screaming and, 
and like I said, I still have, you know, a lot of recurring nightmares about this house. Like this house still haunts me. So in the summer of 1981, there was a serial killer named Clifford Olson. And no one knew him who he was yet, but children were going missing. And my mom, who was not in a good mental health and living with this old lady who to this day, I can't get a word out of her of why and how she ever hooked up with this lady. I suspect my mom was involved in some kind of weird witchcraft stuff and she met up with this lady and this lady was probably her mentee or mentor. I don't know. My mom was into weird shit. You know, anything weird of the 70s, flower child, hippie, cults, weirdos, communes, she was all in and I got dragged through quite a bit of it. And um, and uh, so this is what I suspect. When Irina died, my mom did inherit the house and she sold it right away and we moved to kids. And my mom actually became quite more normal. She actually started working as a social worker and she got her life together and she wasn't like the canatonic crazy lady that was that I remember from that house smoking a pack of Rothmans every day and drinking black coffee and going hysterical. But anyways, back to Clifford Olson. In my part two of this podcast, I'm going to really get into who is known as the beast Clifford Olson, the child serial killer who was a sadist sexual pedophile that targeted children of men, I mean, sorry, boys and girls and brutally tortured them. And not only did he torture them, but while in prison, he would write these horrible letters and it's just disgusting that he was allowed to. He would write these awful letters to the parents on their anniversaries describing in really gross detail of what he did to their children. And it's just a tragedy in itself that he was allowed to do that. But in my next podcast, I am going to get into who this monster was, but I'm just going to tell you from a child perspective. So 10 years old, you know, in this terrifying situation of backyard beatdowns, a woman being raped, old lady dying of mysterious circumstances, you know, creepy, crazy old men that yell at you if you throw their, if your ball lands on their yard, a vicious Doverman attack and living in a truly creepy house with a creepy old lady that with dark, scary eyes who smokes a, a stinky ass pipe who makes her own sauerkraut, you know, who would talk to you in broken English and, and uh, make you wash your hands with a red boiled egg and you have to chant the blood of Christ on Easter. So yes, that's a very troubling childhood. So on top of all that was... The serial killer in 1981. And of course, serial killers were new in 1981. So my mom, we had a radio station, sorry, a radio, a big radio that would be in the kitchen. And my mom would always have it on. My mom listened to CK&W, a talk radio. And it, you know, one of those stations that would tell you the news every hour, you know, six o'clock news and the five o'clock. And it would just, it, every, every hour it would give you a news. And of course, serial killer, children going missing. And at this stage, no one knew his name yet, but people, children were going missing. My mom was going absolutely out of her mind and screaming. And I think my mom was already traumatized about the, the neighbor being raped. So it really sent her over the edge. So every time I went in the house, my mom's going on about these kids going missing and, you know, and she was, she really seemed to push a button. So I heard about it nonstop. 
And um, so one day I'm walking to the store and at this time, you know, I, I did everything in my ability to be out of the house. So anything I can join sports, I was, I was already in boxing. I went to the, I went to the pool every, every chance I got. I went, I was in boy scouts. This is so I could be out of that house. Anything that I could do to be out of that house, I was out of that house. So being terrified of seeing vicious beatdowns, dog attacks, worried that maybe the, the rapist was going to go after my mother. I carried a pocket knife on me. I carried a buck knife that was popular at the time. I think you could still buy them, but I carried a four inch buck knife. I carried it in my sock and I was prepared to use it because I seen nothing but violence and, and been in and, and fear so much. So I'm walking to the corner store and there was this corner store called Lucky Mart, a, uh, a Chinese store. There used to be these Chinese corner stores in East Vancouver. Anyone who grew up in East Vancouver know exactly what I'm talking about. Corner stores run by Chinese people. And so I walk into the store, buy my chocolate bar, whatever, you know, candies. And I come out and there's this guy and he has a big... I would, I think it was a Buick type of Buick, big car and he had the door open and he had a package and he had a $1 bill and he was trying to, he said, Hey kid, come here. And he was a heavy set guy. I would say he was a, a fat guy, red hair. He wearing big kind of thick glasses, kind of looked like he had a perm kind of Afro-y kind of, you know, permy hair. People used to get perms back then. It was a thing, men and women. So it looked like it was a perm and, and I'm already at fucking, you know, excuse my language. I'm already fear of my, of, you know, of creepers, rapists, you know, dogs. And, and he's like, Hey kid, can you deliver this package down the street? And there was like the store, like not even a block away. So, you know, 10 years old, I'm not stupid. He wants me to get in the car, grab the package and then take it to a walkway for a dollar. So I just, I just said straight up to him. I, I pull out my knife and I said, listen, you grab me, you touch me. I'm going to stick this knife in your fat fucking thighs, motherfucker. And, and he got the message and he just took off with the door open, right? He took off. And, and so now, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about my mom going on and on and on about kids going missing. So I run home. I tell my mom, my mom goes out of her mind because again, we didn't know it was Clifford Olson. My mom runs out of the house. She's screaming bloody murder. Instead of just calling the cops saying the serial killer, or I don't think she used the word serial killer. Someone try to grab my kid. She's just like screaming and neighbors are coming, running out of the house. Someone calls the cops. The cops come over. I give them the description. They write it down. They I get tell them what happened. Of course, I didn't tell them anything about pulling the knife on the guy, right? But, but I'm I'm like, then I'm thinking that was the guy that was going around taking all the kids and stuff, right? So I'm thinking now that guy who was who was you know with all these kids disappearing, you know, try to grab me on top of everything else. So now I, I'm, I'm, you can say I'm pretty traumatized. I can't sleep at night at all. And this house again is super creepy. And my brother, I noticed he started acting up more. He started being out of the house. He would, he would leave. He would not come home. He would not tell my mom where he was. He started hanging out with a worse and worse crew, which I kind of went into, uh, in my earlier podcast about some of the crimes and stuff that he got into. And, and 
I think that the house kind of traumatized him too. I think he had a very scary experience, him and his friends, because they bought an Ouija board. And he never told me what happened, but they were playing around the Ouija board and something really like freaked him out. He smashed that Ouija board and threw it in the garbage. When I, even when I tried to tell him like, hey, what happened? He was just like, nope, wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me anything. He wouldn't tell me what happened. I was so curious once about Irina's background. And like I said, she kind of came and went. And as I said, she was always was at the house during Easter. I had a friend that I grew up with who was one of my best friends who was Ukrainian. And he spoke Ukrainian. So I asked him once, hey, can you come by the house? I want you to, you know, ask, you know, some, you know, ask some questions to this old lady, Irina. And he came over. And he started talking to her in Ukrainian. And first she seemed really, like you can tell, she was really irritated. She did not want to talk to him. And her face was getting kind of like really like kind of scary and animated. Like, you know, old lady, like very witchy kind of look. And her, and her, and her wearing her like headscarf. And she was just getting really annoyed. And and he was getting kind of look, looking at me nervously. And then she said something to him. I don't know what she said. He would not tell me. She said something to him in a really low, scary voice. And and he and, and he kind of said he said to me, "Okay, let's go." And he asked me to. Like, I walked him home, and I asked him, "What did he? What what did uh, she?" she say to you and he goes oh she said something to me really bad like really scary like something like it was almost like a death threat like it was some kind of like i think she said some almost like a curse like something but in his language that he totally understood and i think he had trouble maybe even like translating what was said into english but it really scared him so bad and even though we were good friends and we were you know stayed close until even in our 20s he never wanted to talk about that and he never 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 came over to my house ever again like if he went pick me up he'd wait outside he, he she said something to him that just like something really witchy and scary and and um Irina and uh died under weird circumstances too she died on Vancouver Island and uh my mom was really tight-lipped about the circumstances of the death and like I said she it, she gave the house to my mom and my mom sold it for a whole 150k can you imagine a house in Vancouver now for 150k so the house like I said, still haunts me. I, I still think a lot about the house. And I'm going to talk about the fire now. The fire was really strange. So this happened right after that creepy guy wanted me to get into the car. And I was going out for lunch with my mother. And for some reason, she says, oh, let's go swing by the house. And we came by the house. And there's like black, thick smoke just pouring out of the house. And my mom's freaking out because we have a dog, we have two cats, and you know we she went to the neighbors. Remember, no cell phones in 1981, right? And we fire department come, and then they they you know they go in with the fire hoses, and they luckily the dogs and the cats were fine. And someone threw something in between the house, but so in between the house there was like this kind of wire mesh fence and you can actually see where someone was standing and they smashed the window and they threw something in. Now, you know, my, my, I knew, I don't know. My brother wasn't home for like three days around that time. 
And, and I remember when he came home, he just looked so like I've never seen such a guilty look on someone's face. And of course he was completely tight lipped. So I don't know, was it one of the kids that he beat that they beat the crap out of in, in the yard? And, um, who knows? Who knows? My brother was up to some pretty shady stuff. They were, you know, his crew was a pretty tough crew. And like I said, in my last podcast, they were into stealing people's cars. They were, uh, you know, they were doing armed robberies. They were doing some serious kind of heavy crimes. And, and I think that my brother kind of had to go through those backyard beatdowns. I didn't see him ever getting into fights in the backyard. I seen him kick the crap out of people, but, um, um, you know, I think he went through that and I think it really traumatized him because before he was about 15, he was a totally different kid. He was into the, he was into playing the trumpet. He was in, he was a, like an all-star hockey player. He'd do all these tournaments. He was being scouted already. His dad was an engineer and, and a pretty smart guy. And his dad was always like working like overseas. And, and I think his dad didn't really want to raise kids. So he was kind of happy just to pawn him off on a crazy mother because he would rather just, his dad would rather just be, you know, in foreign countries doing these engineering projects. So my dad, I think my brother would have turned out very different in a better environment. And if he had a better father figure, I had no father figure. My dad was in another country. He was deported after the car accident. And, um, so I raised myself as you can probably imagine. Um, mentally I was tougher than my brother. My brother was probably physically tougher than me, but I was definitely a lot more mentally tougher. And I think the, um, the weird house, the old lady things creeping him out. I think he got pretty tormented and bullied and then he became a tough guy and he kind of had to prove himself to these guys and he did prove himself, but he never, he, he only kind of grew to a point and then he never really progressed any farther than a certain point you know what i mean like he became like this kind of legend tough guy but then he almost became a cartoon character um and, and never really progressed much farther but i do truly believe my brother had a better environment with a good father figure and a, a more wholesome environment he probably would have been he probably could have been in the nhl or at least made it really high as an amateur hockey player because he was really good and it's just too bad that you know this environment did do something to him it really did and then my brother became an opiate addict and then, of course, died of opiate addiction, died of a drug overdose, which is truly tragic in itself. And I blame the events of 1981 because things weren't so bad, even though the house was creepy, but my, we would take a lot of road trips. We went to Disneyland, we'd travel across Canada, we'd go camping and stuff. But the weird events of 1981, starting off with that vicious dog attack, you know, the, the tragic of that woman being raped, you know, the, the, the creepy surrounding the, the old lady in the creepy house and, you know, having to wash her hands and in and like blood red eggs chanting blood. You know, it it wasn't like that till that point. And my brother started rebel, and he really wasn't having it anymore. So he was wasn't home a lot. And then when he was home, he was 
probably decompressing from the crazy stuff that he was doing with his crew of, of gangsters. So he was not of, of good sound of mind. And, and, um, as, and as what I did, you know, I joined anything I possibly could from army cadets to boy scouts to a weekend. I'd even join winter camping, this winter camping, outdoor survival camp. I started uh, learning to become a, a sailing instructor through the YMCA. So I'd be gone for the whole summer. So again, for me, I did anything I possibly could not to be in that house. And like I said, you know, that house still haunts me to this day. I think about that house every single day. Another thing that's really creepy about that house. So after um, uh, Irina died, my mom spent some money and renovated the house. She spent some money and renovated and she renovated the outside of it. And the house was like a dark gray uh, stucco. And she painted this. My mom had a horrible taste when it came to color. And she painted, she got it painted in this new stucco of beige. And it was like this uh, beige house and with brown trim, which was, you know, looked God awful. Even as a kid, I looked at it, I'm like, oh my God. And, and, uh, um, the, uh, the weird thing was, was, uh, whoever bought it after us changed it back to its original color which totally blows my mind because now the house is with the original color and also one incident too uh before i wrapped up my mom had a really bad nervous breakdown once in the house i remember i was actually i think i was in army cadets and i was away uh for like a long weekend and i came home and, and in the living room so in the living room there was a fireplace like a wooden fireplace right and above the fireplace, there was this, it was mirrored. It had a, like a large four foot square of mirror. And I came home and my mom smashed the mirror up. And I don't know what the ups with that, but she smashed the mirror and, and she was like completely, like just completely out of her mind. And then, so what she did, the cracked mirror, she went to the, the hardware store and she got caulking and she filled in all the cracks and she tried to say, oh, it was an art project and she meant for it to be like that, which is truly bizarre. So in your living room, while you're in this living room, you're looking at this broken mirror of this distorted view it was completely it looked completely crazy and an unhinged so the it even gave the living room even even a worse uh vibe so that's the story of the house in the next podcast i'm going to talk more about the serial killer clifford robert olson and what a true monster he was and 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 Again, at this stage, all we knew that kids were going missing and we didn't really understand who and what was, was taking these kids. And, and, and like I said, if my circumstances, I thought that was Robert, well, I didn't know who he was by name, but I thought that was the killer that tried to attack me. So can you imagine a 10 year old thinking that? Well, every news, uh, newspaper, radio station, and television news is going on about the serial killer roaming around the city, stealing kids and doing horrible things to them and their bodies being, I don't think all the bodies were discovered, but I think one or two were. But the sick thing about Robert Olson is he made the cops pay him money to tell where the bodies was. And I'll get into that in the next podcast. 
So thank you for listening to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. And, I, and I'm sorry it's been a while, but as you can probably understand with the tragedies that I've experienced, um, you know, I had a lot on my plate. I'm going to do my best of trying to put out podcasts regularly. I have a passion. I love doing podcasts. And I'm, um, and now, you know, before I try to be as you know, compassionate to these missing murdered women, which I truly going to do more of these cases of, but I truly understand what it's like to have someone you love and they're not with you and they're gone tragically. And I know what that feels like that emptiness. So I really want to do more on the missing murdered indigenous women and other women and, and men too, and people that go missing tragically, because I, I, I understand the emptiness that these families must feel that they have a loved one and now they're gone and they're not there anymore. And so I'm going to continue on with that. Um, a podcast I want to give a shout out to that truly is a, a great podcast and I really enjoyed listening to it. And, and I got to know Simone a little bit. Simone, uh, runs a 90 crime time podcast and my next coming up podcast I'm going to start doing more 90s crime in Vancouver because there's some really interesting stuff especially women start going missing and Vancouver in the 90s was a very dynamic place and I have a lot of insight and experiences through that time I worked in the bar industry and, and so I plan a lot of great stories and a lot of personal experiences that I went through in the 90s so uh, I am very nostalgic for the 90s and and I really love 90s I wish you know the 90s were now especially with COVID and how crazy and awful 2020 is is that I would love it for it to go back to the 90s so check out the 90s crime time podcast awesome podcast run by Simone so I'm going to say goodbye for now thank you for listening and take care of yourself thank you so much do you love true crime do you love the 90s? Well, I've got a brand new true crime podcast for you called 90s Crime Time. I'm your host, Simone, and on this show, you'll hear cases from theft to kidnapping to murder, all from this great decade of 1990 to 1999. Unlike the O.J. Simpson trial, the Columbine High School massacre, and the Oklahoma City bombing, on this show, I'd like to focus on lesser-known 90s crime cases that did not make much, if any, national news. You'll hear cases such as the murder of Sharice Iverson, the death of Tommy Burke, the Stardust Casino robbery, the murder of Diane Nash, and others. On 90s Crime Time, you're more than likely going to be amazed at just how many violent crimes occurred during this time period. Scorned lovers, serial killers, and baby killers were just some of the types of murderers that committed grisly crimes throughout the 90s. I will warn you, some of these crimes I will talk about may make you sad, angry, or maybe even a little scared. Listener discretion is always advised, and I hope that you'll tune in every Wednesday and Thursday for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. You can find 90s Crime Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. You can also find 90s Crime Time on social media apps such as Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. I'd love for you to take a listen, maybe follow, and maybe leave a rating or two. 
Don't forget to tell your friends and family about 90s Crime Time, and I'll see you soon on the show.